Welcome back, pod people, to our final Alfred Hitchcock episode in 2022. I'm just making a prediction. I guess it's possible that Hitchcock slips in there again. But for our early 2022 Hitchcock theme, we've reached the end. This is part five of five, and we're talking about the greatest film of all time, according to Sight and Sound now. It finally surpassed Citizen Kane after all these years. Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Yeah, it's interesting that it, uh, that it overtook it. I don't know. I wonder what the... Like, obviously, they, they don't do... They don't give reasons for for why it overtakes it. Like, is it just because, like, people that were voting for it or like the the changing demographic of younger people voting younger directors that were more influenced by this than they were by citizen kane just eventually because i know that's who they they pull people in the film industry writers directors for what they consider to be the greatest film and it's it was yeah it was citizen kane for so long and it's almost like what my thought process is is give it like another 10 years or so and what'll be the movie from like the 70s or 80s like like will it randomly be oh now it's now it's the godfather 2 or something or taxi driver like is the one that's voted the most just because it it just slowly gets look at the list i know for the longest time though vertigo was number two all the time and that's why every year they said oh i don't remember if it's yearly but every time they did the poll again they would say hey i think vertigo might actually pass it this year then it didn't so I'm sure if we look at whoever third is, it's a possibility. But I think more than anything, people have been excited to see like what was finally going to surpass Citizen Kane because Citizen Kane's 1941, so there's been cinema for quite some time. But I don't know. Like, Do, do I enjoy Vertigo more than Citizen Kane? I do. Is Vertigo a better made film? I, I don't really know. I can tell you the the movie listed third on their most recent update, which was 2021, is Tokyo Story, which and is actually an older movie than than Vertigo technically. And it's a wonderful movie too. I could see it. The uh, the only in the top ten, the only movie that came out uh, later than well, technically two films are 2001: A Space Odyssey and Eight and a Half. Are the only two films that came out after Vertigo in the top ten. Yeah, it's interesting because we, I mean, me and you, we didn't vote on this very British thing, yeah. so it's hard to decipher exactly what makes the greatest film of all time. Obviously, there has to be all aspects of the filmmaking, like all departments, like everything has to be its absolute best. I would say. You know, from script to to cinematography to lighting to set design and and all and acting and everything. So yeah, yeah, it takes a lot. Um, Chuck was yawning. That's why it was like like I paused my thought and then rambled off. Nothing. The you know, I also love the fact that the the film. You know, Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, his first film, which was always, he always, like, I guess, kind of gets mocked for 
that his first film is his greatest film, and it was just all all kind of downhill from there for him. Uh, whereas the, <laughs> he's the like film, a he's like a child star, but yeah. of cinema. And yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing ever was better than that. And then with something like Vertigo, that's uh, that's a good like 35, 40 films into his career. Closer to the end of his career than it was the beginning. Right. He actually did kind of become more of the master as time went along. Yeah. Hitchcock, as you said, he keeps perfecting and perfecting and perfecting. But at this time, he's also playing around a little bit. This and Psycho, I would say, are the ones that he plays around with the structure the most, more than any of his other films. And Vertigo, I think the only reason Vertigo was not as popular as Psycho for the longest time is Vertigo was one of the films that was basically shelved for 30 years. People couldn't see it. It was just word of mouth, I guess. It was like one of the five Hitchcock movies that Hitchcock owned and then released, you know, obviously in our time, DVD and stuff had, had come out. But it's a... Uh, I don't, I don't know necessarily know how to, it, he, he definitely, we've already talked, we started with Shadow of a Doubt, well, we didn't start with it, but one of his early films from 1943 that he says is his favorite, and I just found it interesting too that even this, he, in this movie, I'll talk about it, he points out the flaws in this movie that bother him, and it's considered the greatest film of all time, and he sees his own flaws in it. He's like, it's right here. I have a big issue with this. Yeah. But yeah, I just, you said your top 10 Hitchcock movies. This is number one for you? Yeah. It is. What's your number two? Rear, rear window, you said? Yeah. Uh, it was funny, though, because we had done The Man Who Knew Too Much, Rear Window, and now Vertigo. And when I put on Vertigo, Steph's like, is Jimmy Stewart in all of these movies? And I said, nah, just the ones that we picked for he's, some reason. No, he's just in the good ones. <laughs> yeah, he is. I mean, he is in uh, a lot of his best films there. Um, I think this is one of his better roles, too. I think he really does a great job. Yeah, he definitely doesn't. Uh, this one doesn't have him. I think this one and Rear Window both don't have him going into that like too crazy. Like again, we've we've mentioned Rope a number of times. Like Rope's the one where he gets like a little too uh, too eccentric with his performance at the end of that film. Uh, that he gets a bit much, and he doesn't really do that in eh, The Man Who Knew Too Much. He doesn't really do it in either. Um, that's I, I would almost say he like kind of gets better and better with these with these Hitchcock roles till he gets to Vertigo, which is I don't know maybe. I, I kind of like one of his more Hitchcock's like stranger films in how it's structured and set uh, in just the way it, it kind of divides itself into two separate, two separate halves uh, in the first half is very interesting that even just the way it starts with a, with like a, a random chase scene, which is not many of Hitchcock's films just start right into action or something like that. They almost always like a real slow building up into something. I mean, and there's not one. really much action in this movie no. beyond that opening scene. Yeah, we, we get that. And that's, that's when we, we, we learn. We got a rooftop chase, which kind of makes us 
reminds me of the matrix you know it it's influenced movies clearly over the last several decades yeah but yeah it starts with the chase and jimmy stewart is is up on the rooftops yeah yeah his his cop partner falls to his death <laughs> his cop partner his cop partner the unnamed policeman yeah it's actually i really like how it's set up he 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 basically misses his jump and he's hanging on and this other cop that's chasing this bad guy the unnamed cop that's chasing the unnamed bad guy decides to come back to help Jimmy Stewart and he ends up falling to his death while he's trying to help him and i love very early on on the film Jimmy Stewart's like they said that it's not my fault but I think that Hitchcock did a great job where that's like something that people would say and you can't a hundred percent blame him, but he, he is, he did factor into the reason why that guy fell. Cause he made his jump. He went back to save you. So, yeah. and, and he doesn't hound on that idea any farther in the entire movie. It's just, it's just, uh, it just adds to that character of this like trauma that he's gone through. And we get the explanation of his vertigo. Yeah, that's where that's where it comes from. When you just you just can't handle those heights anymore. Yeah, I mean, I even like how they're explaining it early on, and he he retires as a detective, and he's trying to work through his vertigo, and he's trying to say like I'm much better, I'm much better. So his uh, ex fiance slash friend Midge is like testing him on this stole well and he's sh showing how much higher up he can go and higher up he can go and then he gets that glance like out the window because he's several stories up in the building and it's just i don't know she catches him <laughs> <laughs> but i just in that simple effect that he has of uh you know pulling the focus as he pulls the camera back to create that vertigo feeling like every time that that Jimmy Stewart's character looks down like it's a it's a, a wonderful effect but I mean this movie I I honestly have to say that this is probably Hitchcock's most playful movie as far as how manipulative he is to the characters and even the audience like he is in full control of how the story is being told and it's like it is the suspense where you're on the edge of your seat, but he just like the way that he ends up playing with everything. So this ends up starting off like a detective story, a retired detective story, yeah. then turns into like a ghost story <laughs> <laughs> and then becomes kind of like a weird drama. <laughs> like it just keeps going through all these different layers of, of the exact same movie. Yeah, yeah, he he definitely changes it up a lot. Uh, yeah, we start off with uh, he's following the wife of an old college friend around and starts getting told weird stories that is that his wife's obsessed with. Uh, you know, as some uh, old ancestor, like her great grandparent or something that that she's obsessed with her and. She wants to do all this stuff, and she, he says, like she zones out and goes somewhere else while she's thinking about it, and 
She goes all these places, a old graveyard with a headstone from her great grandmother and a museum with a picture of her and the old house that she used to live in. And it just really builds up this, uh, this very repetitive structure there where it's, it seems like that's he just follows her around and she just keeps doing the same thing. She goes to the same places. Uh, and then when he asks her about it later, she says she's never been to any of those places. She's never done any of that. Uh, he pulls her out of the river or out of the bay when she jumps in. And yeah, that's that's what he starts to he starts to like I really mean, believe that says, story. His friend says that she think he thinks that she's possessed. It's a great way to start a you know a private eye case. It, it it does really go back to that noir element that we love so much. Just follow my wife around, and uh, it's it's strange. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, just the way that he pieces it all together is great, too. And as he starts following this woman around, he ends up crushing on her. He, he essentially he starts falling in love with her, which is, like, another one of Hitchcock's things. Is this weird? Like the it, it kind of goes back into rear window with that like voyeurism and the character that just gets infatuated with this person who has no idea that they've they you know has no idea that they're being watched. Yeah. Dot dot dot. Well, but uh, although appendices, she, <laughs> although she does know she's being watched because it was all. You know, it was all part of the plan, I guess. If you if you look at it that way, because there is there are like moments where it almost feels like yeah, I didn't want to straight like, up say that, yeah, but yeah, where where you're like, how does this woman like not notice? Because Jimmy Stewart's like for being a detective doesn't seem like he's like he he stands like very close to her, like not even really like that far. He's out of an the okay detective, but when you're possessed, you don't notice what's going on. Yeah, around you. that that's just supposed to be the the thought process there. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a very it's a wonderful story, where this character develops vertigo, has this trauma, and has to retire as a detective. And his old friend reaches out to him, saying, "Hey, you know, I know you're retired now, but I'd really like you to you know follow my wife around, and she's been acting strange, and I'm I'm worried about her, and I th- I think I might commit her to a mental institution, but." I want to actually get some evidence first before I make such a drastic decision. So he ends up following her around all San Francisco. And I love these movies where they don't really hide like what the place looks like at the time. So you get like a very modern 1957 uh, San Francisco. And I, I just like his, uh, his basic pursuit of her, and trying to figure out what she's going on, what's going on, and he essentially comes up with the idea that she's a little bit crazy. And where the last part that you left off on is uh, where she jumps in, you know, in the water, like under the Golden Gate Bridge, and he jumps in to save her, and he ends up like taking her home and making sure that she's okay, and he just ends up falling in, falling in love with his person. And he feels like he has to protect her. And he's definitely, definitely is, is seeing the crazy, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, she seems to she seems to not know. She she well, he tells her that she fell in at first, like because he doesn't want to make her feel bad, I guess, or scare her. He's like, oh yeah, I don't know, you must have you must have just fell in, I guess, and I was just happened to be there and saw you there, so I, I jumped in and saved you. Yeah, I saved your life. I like too when you see the Golden Gate Bridge now. How there's a like that spot where they filmed underneath the bridge. There's like a railing now. Yeah, <laughs> to keep it to keep it safe, I guess. You want to make sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah, I bet everybody. Maybe after that movie, everybody was jumping in. I know. I know it was definitely a movie that wasn't well received at the time. Which seems to be pretty regular for movies that end up blowing everybody's minds. You know, we just had the Academy Awards, and I'm interested in what we're talking about in 10, 15 years from 2021. Is it going to be CODA? Probably not. Yeah. You never know. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the hardest thing uh, with any not just film like the awards or anything like that. And I, I know me and you have, have like talked about it on other things of, uh, there's a lot of movies that come out that either you didn't like, and then, yeah, you give it like 10 or 15 years and you go back to watch it and you're like, Oh, you know what? I actually like, there's something about it that <coughs> maybe I didn't see before. Just didn't care about before. Now. Yeah. And then there's, I think this, this I think honestly happens more with me is uh, movies that you were like, man, that movie was great. And you like watch it. And then it's like you, uh, you go to watch it like 10 years later and you're like, that movie's not good. Like, why did I like that movie? So like, was it like, it's hard to say, like, was it just like the hype around it or something? And you like, you're like, yeah, that was a pretty good movie. And then you watch it like now and you're like, that movie's you not as good as I thought. Time. The buffer of time will tell you yeah. if it's good or not. There's, there's plenty of, plenty of films that have that have come along like that uh you know a lot of people mention that like the academy awards forrest gump's always like the one that everyone hits on because it was the same year as uh shawshank redemption and pulp fiction and people are like really like even that year you still said that was the that was the best movie that came out that year you're describing me I know. i'm in that camp i know you think that i know so we, we've we've mentioned this before when we've we've talked about these films that's like a that's like a perfect example um, but you know, every once in a while you get those good years where you have like a, where you have like a lot of great movies like 2007, where you had like no country for old men, there will be blood. Uh, I think atonement came out that year. There was a lot Zodiac. of good movies that year. Yeah. Zodiac was that <laughs> You're year. like, like, uh, what else? I like atonement. Yeah. That was, that was a good year for movies. <laughs> atonement so. is good. But it always, yeah, again, it always is going to depend on, uh, yeah, how, how it ages, how people view it. So. Yeah, but I guess that's what happened with with this film. And I I don't know why it didn't get appreciated. I don't know if it, maybe it's cuz it's it's not the typical like super suspenseful Hitchcock film like it does play everything a lot slower in its build up. It's not immediately like even his films that came out right before this which would have been uh The Man Who Knew Too Much was in 56 and Rear Window was 54. Like those build the tension a lot quicker. They get a lot faster. Well, do you also think it's the... a little harder to to stomach the movie? Not in the way that it's like an awful movie, but you get all this information that doesn't exactly play into anything until a little farther into the movie. 
Yeah. And he does that a few times throughout this movie. That could, well, you know what? I don't think he's ever specifically mentioned this, but because uh, Psycho would have been the next one after this, I think. I don't think there was anything between Vertigo and Psycho. Um, North by Northwest. But, oh, yeah. But um, Psycho little, was... Little movie. Yeah, just that, just that one. Just a small Hitchcock um, movie. But that was uh, that was Hitchcock's big thing with Psycho, was he was the first person to establish basically show times and say, like, you know, you have to show up to the movie and watch it from the beginning because for... Like the entire his this still this still is like the thing that blows my mind the most about movies that we'll never understand because it's never been that way while we were alive, but the idea that the movie theaters would just run the film from like ten o'clock in the morning till ten o'clock at night and it would just play on a loop the entire day and you could just walk in whenever you wanted to and just watch the movie halfway through and then watch the credits and then watch the first half after that like you just showed up whenever you wanted to show up at the movie theater and I feel like this is this is definitely an example of yeah, you can't show up halfway through this movie and even remotely hope to understand it properly. Um, Cause I know that was his big thing with psycho is that you'll, if you watch it from the halfway point and then try to watch the first half, it's the whole thing's going to be ruined for you. So I wonder if this also played into that of like, if someone told him like, well, yeah, the movie doesn't make any sense if you walk in like halfway through and then, you know, you're going to be all confused while you're trying to watch There's it. There's a which... middle begin. There's a, a beginning, a middle and an end. That's yeah. the way that you're supposed to watch my movie. Yeah. Yeah. Shocker. That's how you're supposed to watch a film and, and understand a story. So yeah, I don't know if that's like another thing that plays into part of it is just that people just didn't get it when they went to see it or something like that. It's honestly a little slow burn. It, it really is. Because we're we're watching things from his perspective as he's following Madeline around and seeing if she's crazy or not. And she is doing a shit ton of weird things. And so it does at and but and the suicide attempt. It all seems off. So it kind of does build perfectly into us seeing through this character's eyes and, and kind of agreeing with what this character is seeing. And then we get to the next section of the movie, which is he basically kind of connects to this person on a, a human level and, and starts to, to fall for her. And he kind of has this protective aspect to him. He doesn't kind of, he, he does. He has a protective aspect to him where he cares about her and he cares about her well-being. And yeah. he gets a, he gets that point one of my one of my favorite scenes it's like a good comedic uh moment after he after he rescues her from from when she jumps into the water uh when he goes to follow her the next day and she's like driving in circles and he's like where is this woman going and then she drives up to his apartment. That's 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 one of my favorite like kind of like joke scenes in the film is when he's just like he just like looks so confused he's like he's like i don't understand where she's driving to and then like she shows up at his apartment he's like oh yeah and from that point on there that's when he starts uh he he gives up pretending to follow her he, he just decides that he'll just get in the car with her and they can just drive somewhere yeah and you have like the beautiful scene where they're like in the redwood forest and they keep keep doing this shot where he obsesses he really obsesses over her hair and 
he kind of sees her in a, I don't know how to describe it, like a spiritual kind of way is the way that Hitchcock lights it. I don't want to say it's ghost-like yet at that moment, but as if he's he's seen an angel or something. It has that weird aspect to it. And it's incorporated into the way that this character feels. So I guess when we get to the big moment that comes, what, halfway through the movie again? This is Hitchcock's favorite, like, halfway, some weird shit's going to go on. Yeah. So uh, this is actually kind of, it's kind of weird because when you think of story structure, this really goes against the grain. Like what is the catalyst? Uh, There's like almost two of them in this because the character's vertigo plays into it, but it's more of a setup than anything. It's not really what happens that changes things. It's this long period of time from his investigating up until this uh, suicide attempt that she pulls on him. And he chases after her and she goes up this, uh, what would you call it? Like the bell tower of a chapel. Yeah. So she runs up this thing and he's trying to chase her to stop her. But his vertigo hits, you know. And he can't, he can't follow her up anymore. He's like getting ill, and she ends up jumping to her death. So, the vertigo has done him in, and then he's basically tried. Though there's a hearing for about what happened to her, and they deem that it was suicide, and that there's nothing that you know could have been done. So it all fit this doctor. He's a shipyard guy. His friend's story. Yeah. But and that and then he's just really depressed about it because this is the second person that's died on his watch. So, I mean, at least over the course of this movie, maybe he's had more deaths growing up too. <laughs> but I just I and I like how he's just like longing after her and kind of like looking at the th- all these things that remind him of her. And then this is where the Hitchcock comes back into play. He sees her again. He yeah. sees her on the street. And, you know, obviously it's, it's Kim Novak again, but she's a brunette. She looks different. Her hair's done differently. Well, this is, this is as, as far as we know, this is a year later. Cause don't forget he had that he has a whole psychology. Oh yeah, he did go to a that, psych ward himself. That, that animated sequence that I think is really cool. I do like that 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 whole sequence is really uh, his head really floating around. Fun. Yeah, all the all the the strobing colors and his head like explodes into flowers. The flowers that are like the bouquet that yeah that the painting has. Uh, uh that, yeah, that whole sequence is fun and fun and weird right in the middle there where he just snaps and uh, yeah, yeah, I honestly that is a a big thing for me to gloss over because him snapping kind of plays into the fact that what what is he seeing now? Is he seeing what he wants to see? Yeah. Or is this person really there? Yeah. That's I, I love when he's like he's in the he's in the psych ward and uh that woman's there with him midge and she's like she's like 
maybe we could play you some Mozart. Would you like that? And he's just sitting there. He just stares at nothing. Like he's just so blankly out of it. She's like, we have all sorts of music. We can, uh, we can play you Beethoven. She's like making jokes about it. She's like, what if they switched your, switch your charts? They'd play you Bach instead. Ludwig van. Yeah. Yeah. Good bit of that. Uh, but yeah, then, yeah, that, that, I guess, like we were saying, that's, that's what plays into more of, more of the next sequences is, yeah, now that, now that you know that he's had a complete, uh, complete psychotic breakdown over all this and it's, it's been over a year that, that, yeah, is, is this girl that he sees on the street? Is it actually, is it actually her? We kind of see him. I think he like, he, yeah, he goes to like all the places that he, yeah. that he expects to see her. He goes to the, we see him at that restaurant where he first saw her with, uh, with the husband at the very beginning of the movie, which is why it works with the breakdown. He's revisiting yeah. all these places yeah, he keeps and ends up seeing her. So he sees all the, all the women that like all have that same kind of hairstyle and wear those same kind of outfits. He gets and, turned by that look. Yeah. It, it confuses him. He's, you know, yeah, he sees the, he sees the same car in the driveway of the, of the house where the husband used to live. And, he starts asking that woman like, Oh, whose car is this? She's like, Oh, it's mine. I bought it off the guy that used to live here. And no. Oh. And, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely one of those The guy quit oddly left the area. Yeah. yeah he, he left, he packed up everything, which, which, yeah, he told us at the beginning of the film that he hated the shipping business, like didn't want any part of it, but it was his wife's, the, his wife's family business that he married into. So he was stuck with it. He didn't really want anything to do with it. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's definitely, he, he's hoping it, it's one of those like definitely wishful thinking. Like he's hoping he'll see her when he goes to revisit all these places. Like he still doesn't believe that she's dead, but like he almost can't believe it when he actually does see her. And then the creepy is he follows her. <laughs> yeah. He follows her up to her apartment, knocks on her door and, and she's like, this is inappropriate essentially. <laughs> You just look like a lady that I used to know. I've heard that one before. Yeah. Which is great, because it does sound like a pickup line. You remind me of somebody that I used to know. Yeah, so she lets him in and allows him to talk to her, and he's just, he basically creeps his way into a date. <laughs> so she le so he leaves... And then we get this reveal, which isn't very much farther into the movie. The audience is told about the setup. And she basically writes a letter and tells it through voiceover, which maybe is not the greatest. But visually, we get to see it, too, which is pretty cool. Where she pretended to be this guy's wife. And Jimmy Stewart never actually saw what the real wife looked like. So he thought that this person was the wife and when he ch chased her up the to that bell tower the, the uh shipyard guy I'm forgetting his name right now Esther Yeah, Esther was up there with his wife, his dead wife and he threw her. So he knew and this is Hitchcock's biggest problem with his own movie that the vertigo kicked in and he wasn't able to make it up those those steps. And Hitchco and so the fact that he wasn't able to make it up, he was set up as a 
a witness. <laughs> yeah. A witness for murder, essentially. <laughs> and they built up everything quite nicely, I, I think. But Hitchcock was like, you know, even with the vertigo, the guy could have probably made it all the way up. <laughs> he, he just conveniently couldn't make it through the trap door. Oh, yeah. But she she's in love with him, according to her. But she can't tell him quite yet. So she wants to spend more time with him. It's kind of weird. I mean, I guess she obviously faked her suicide when she tried to jump into the into the water. But I don't know. The fact that he took care of her, she started crushing on him too. She started really liking him too. Yeah, but she was part of the she was part of the plot. She couldn't uh she wanted whatever whatever money she was getting from the husband to uh to follow through with their plan, I guess. Uh, I do like too where he's like basically trying to make her look like Madeline. And it's weird though because she clearly has the same face. Like it's clearly the same person. But I do like when they're doing the 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 suit shopping. He's like, I want to buy you a suit, and he's like very specific about the suit that he wants. And the shop owners are like, we like a guy that knows what he wants. This guy really knows what he wants. Yeah, that's what that's on like the whole. Yeah, the <laughs> the end of the the end of the movie. There is like the yeah his obsession like starts to starts to go. Just completely, completely. Well, think about the weird point. sexist times too, where like they sit down and the guy picks out the outfit, and then when she's at the salon, the the lady's coming out to tell him that he's he's getting what he wants. Yeah, which is essentially getting her like he's like you can do the right color, right? He wants the right platinum blonde look for this character. Yeah, and I love how pissed he gets. And he's like, why didn't you do the haircut? Why didn't you do the pin? I told you to do the pin. Yeah, he's she. He tries to like go along with it for a while with uh, with her just looking like she does, but it's not enough. He's just, yeah, he's got to have everything, everything exactly the way that he, the way that it was uh, with Madeline or what he what he thinks was Madeline. Yeah, he's to keep making making all the changes. Uh, and that scenes I do really like that scene though when when like his obsession like kind of reaches its peak, which is when like she comes out of the she comes out of the bathroom yeah. and she that like now she finally perfectly looks like like she did when he saw her last time and it has uh, that same shot of her in the redwood forest. Yeah, yeah, he does that and he does that great edit of like where he uh he spins the camera around them and it uh it transports him back to the to the time that he kissed her in the stables at the church. Uh, and then it spins back to them being in the room and it's like, it's a really cool effect. Yeah. And, and it's like, it, it does seem like that's where it would have ended. Like it's, it's just that much like all of Hitchcock's films or, or a lot of them, there's just that one piece that just ruins everything. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's always jewelry. It's always jewelry. He loves the, he loves to use the jewelry as the deal breaker that, that somehow, uh, ruins the whole plan because uh, yeah it does seem like he's he was once she makes those changes and does that uh which she finally agrees to go along with like that he's pretty much 
like settled down. He's he's like less crazy. He's just like, oh no, it's fine. You know, now that you've changed your appearance to look like that. Uh, but yeah, when he sees the he like, sees I need to necklace, get this out of my system. Yeah, yeah. When he sees the necklace that then he knows she had uh, from the painting that was like the great grandmother's necklace. Uh, that's what that's what just pushes him over the edge. He wants yeah. to he wants to recreate that night. He feels I do like, I do he like can... how he uncomfortable she is in the car, and he's like, "Listen, I got to do this. this. Is the last thing that I'm gonna do." And, but I got to get rid of the past. Like I got to face the past, or however he phrases that. Yeah, yeah. He feels like if he can just uh, if he can just recreate that that day, except this time, get all the way up to the top and uh, not not let his vertigo overcome him. That he'll finally be free of the of the uh, the illness that's overtaken him. Yeah, isn't it mentioned in this movie too that trauma can cure trauma? Essentially, yeah, yeah. Like another that, traumatic uh, experience is probably the only way he's going to get rid of the vertigo. Yeah, that's what the that's what his friend Midge says that that that's what she's been told by doctors. Yeah, I mean, there's another great moment too where I like he calls Midge out. This is I'm backtracking slightly, and he had like he's obsessed over this woman. And she knows the painting of like the great great grandmother or whatever, so she paints a version of that with her own face on it, which is like <laughs> weird for the time, I guess. Yeah. But I like how he's like, "Midge, this is not this is like t- a tasteless joke," and it might be a tasteless joke, but it looked like it also took a lot of time to do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he wants to recreate it. He's figure he figures it out. And he gets her to confess to everything as he gets her to go up, you know, back up to the bell and and confront what's what's happened. And I feel like we get one of the most Hitchcockian but weird endings of all time. Yeah. Which is that nun coming up and spooking the woman who ends up falling out of the tower for real yeah after he's finally been uh he like he like mentions that he's been cured or you know that he finally did it he finally conquered his vertigo and like you know he's he's over the trauma now and yeah yeah i do love that that shot of just her coming out of the dark (laughs) like like i heard it's like it's a weird shot because it's not even a scary shot but it apparently catches her off guard and you do have a sense that like in Hitchcock's world, uh, he overcame this, this phobia that he, he acquired from the beginning of the movie. So that's, that's the climax. He's able to look over down off the tower at her body without hitting, having that vertigo feeling anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It begins and ends in the same way with the, with the trauma. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you think about it, the very beginning of the movie is picking up the trauma and then the end is losing the trauma. Yeah. But yeah, I mean... But he's still left as basically like just a super depressed guy that that uh, the the woman that he fell in love with uh, died twice in his mind, I guess. I mean, it all, all the trauma always happens with somebody falling. Yeah. Yeah, the... Uh, it was an interesting thing, too. I never... 
I never watched it, but it was like uh, after I finished watching the Blu-ray, it it auto started playing like the uh, uh, or it went to like the special features menu. And one of them was the uh, the international ending, which was like it's I don't know. Did you ever watch that? No, it's just a weird tagged on shot um, that and it explains in the in like before they show it that. They added it on for for international cuts because they felt like it didn't. Like, I guess they felt like that was too depressing of an end, but it doesn't really change. He overcame his vertigo. Yeah. Well, no, it's still the exact There's same. There's nothing ending. more positive than that. Yeah, it's still the exact same ending. But then, the it then cuts to him going to Midge's apartment, and there's a radio playing. That's the the guy on the radio is like, and they're extraditing uh, Hester back to America so he can stand trial for the murder of his wife. And it's like, that's like, that's the random extra thing. But it feels, it feels so pointless because it's like the point, the, the point isn't that that guy killed his wife. Like that's, that's not the, that's not the real point of the movie here. Like, and naturally you feel justice. like something like that's going to have to happen. You don't know where he's at, but the story's going to come out. Yeah. Guy's how can, uh, yeah. But no, then everyone will just think he's crazy if he tries to tell that story. They'll be he like, really? Another guy? Yeah, but what evidence? He has no evidence. His evidence is his is his word because she tore up her letter explaining the whole plot like he has no evidence. What about the necklace? It's just a necklace. What does that prove? What about eyewitnesses? There aren't any. You, there's no witnesses he's to her the, He's all. the witness. He was the witness for the first murder, and he testified that she killed herself. Uh, what about the nun? She was a pretty good witness. Well, the, the nun's just going to be like, hey, man, I just came out onto the roof. and that." Lady Do you think fell. that's Hitchcock saying something about religion? Having the nun scare this woman to death? Yeah, because he was like scared by nuns when he was a kid or something. I don't know about that, but yeah, everything reverts back to what he was afraid of as a child. Yeah, I can't remember. I feel like he does bring that up, like that he probably went to like that. I think he went to like Catholic school or something when he was a kid. Uh, oh, I also do like after she's she dies, she falls, <laughs> the nun like in respect out of respect or something starts ringing the bell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I think this is maybe Hitchcock's best movie as far as color goes, and I really like how it feels it really it's it's like similar how like suspiria is with those the bright colors we get like different phases that one shot of when they're in her apartment and that green neon's coming through so she's silhouetted by the the green neon there's like the yeah the green of that room that the uh, bar that's all like it's red mm -hmm. yeah and the red really helps pop like make her pop yeah because she's so so much lighter than everything else in the rest of the room, and I mean, I guess that's what the experience brings you. Yeah, color and shape. It is. It's actually kind of interesting too, because if you think about shape, which we don't talk about a lot in on our on our podcast at all, he's attracted to the circle. The circles like the bun and the flowers and everything that he sees. Yeah. But every time he has vertigo, it's very square. Yeah, yeah. The uh, this film also feels like it's a little. It, it hints a little bit at uh, Hitchcock himself, his obsession, uh, specifically with blonde women. That he was apparently. Uh, uh, it's it's very noticeable at this point in his career that every single movie like had to have a blonde uh, 
a blonde female protagonist. Uh, yeah. For basically every film that he made from, I don't know what the, what exactly maybe the first one is that he specifically started, but especially when he started from making the moment color he could films. Do color. Yeah, especially when he started doing color films. It was like they all had to be platinum blonde, like, yeah, Kim Novak, Tippi Hedren, Doris Day, Grace Kelly, Grace Kelly, Eve Marie Saint. Like, they're all like these uh, Julie Andrews when he gets to that one. Uh, Torn Curtain. It's like, that's where, he, that's where he starts. He only finally gives it up on like the last like four or five movies when he starts doing like Topaz and Frenzy and stuff that he doesn't have like blondes as his. Uh, Oh, yeah, go-to Janet thing. Lee too is blonde. Yeah, even in yeah, even in the one that he did in black and white there. <laughs> uh and then it's funny because Norman Bates, as his mother, has dark hair. <laughs> yeah. So it's like he's he he kind of like, I don't know. Obviously he has that attraction, which I have to say we brought it up early. I think maybe in the first Hitchcock episode when we did uh Lady Vanishes. But those two Hitchcock movies that came out at the same time with Anthony Hopkins and Toby Jones. And you should see them if you haven't seen them yet, Chuck. Yeah. I, I don't think they're very good, very memorable. <laughs> but I I do remember the approaches to them. And Anthony Hopkins was like, Hitchcock's a god. And Hitchcock was such a smart, clever guy. And Toby Jones is just like... This guy was a creep, and they really do focus on that, like, the blondes thing and how he's, like, harassing all these people. Like, they make him so creepy, and it's probably, it honestly has to be more accurate to have him creepy like that. They kind of needed an in-between. They needed Anthony Hopkins, who pulled off Hitchcock well, and the makeup looked great, but playing the Toby Jones character, where he was just, you know, not a god. (laughs) Yeah, that's like that's a that's one of those ones where you know which one was the was the authorized version that the that the family probably had some say in. What makes Vertigo the best film for you? What makes it what puts it above the rest? I don't know. I think it is just something about the way the the way the story plays out that he kind of just lets it. He really lets the mystery just kind of float around like it doesn't. Again, like uh, we discussed before, the way it kind of just changes what the mystery is multiple times throughout this film as to what the exact what the exact plot is. Uh, it doesn't just jump straight into that. I don't know. It's just it's just a great looking film. It is almost half of it's just I love watching this film just because of how how good it looks. Um, and I mean, a lot of his films look really great. Uh he knew exactly so, like the theme of obsession is clearly done better in this than Rear Window, and I, I know so. that's your number two choice. Yeah. But Rear Window's obsession—that character is verbally talking about his obsession. He's he's obsessed with what's going on in this other apartment, and I think Vertigo is more visual, and you can kind of understand where he's coming from almost the entire time like the vertigo's visual the the following is visual the following in love is visual like every everything actually comes down to what you can see and i don't think it really force feeds too much into like the only part of this movie that i would say is bad and I'm sorry, it's it's literally the part where she writes her note 
narrates the scene and then tears it up. Yeah, that's... that's <laughs> it's the, that's only, the only thing where it's like you couldn't have done that visually too. You could have probably just showed... He kind of he does, yeah. That's the only, like, it's kind of redundant because he shows the... He shows that part uh, when she's in her apartment, and then... But does he think people are going to be confused like, about who he... Who th- that guy threw off the tower? But that, well, yeah, because then... <laughs> Because then Jimmy Stewart says it later, the whole time that he's going up the stairs with her at the end, he's like, he's basically saying, he's like, oh, who was up? Who was up there? Was it was it Hester? Was he up there with his wife? Did he right. kill the wife before? Like, and I, like, I so don't think that would have bothered that. me yeah. as much. You know, it's it was fine in the climax of this yeah, movie. To that have, by so. itself. And, and to have like more or less have the have the protagonist like basically like confirming it to himself. Yeah, they only that's. I agree. That was that while I was rewatching it, that was the only part that sticks out in my mind as being right. Like, and they still showed it. They could have showed, showed it, and we would have known. Even if you couldn't grasp it yet as an audience, which is fine. You don't have yeah. to always understand everything right off, off the bat, but you you would know by the end of the movie what happened. Yeah. yeah. And I don't. It's weird because I don't really see Hitchcock, you know, dumbing things down very often. Maybe more towards his final films, but not too often. He he doesn't. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I I would honestly say for me too, this is one of my favorites. It might be my favorite. It's up there with Psycho and Rear Window for sure. And with this movie, I I've always loved like the slow burn. I I, I want. I love the movies that like you can breathe in that that atmosphere like you actually feel like you went somewhere watching that movie and (laughs) Hitchcock does that great job of do I really want to be here though like I feel slightly uncomfortable following this person around and I am not quite sure what I'm getting myself into but being that the opening sequence all in red with eyes and you know all the, the the crazy opening effects uh, I'm sure this movie's gonna get fucking out there. <laughs> you know, like that's what my expectations are yeah. going into this movie. I will say though, this kind of also I I had the same vibe with this movie when I first watched it, where I wasn't sure how I felt about it. I did like it, but I was like, I'm not was like weighing it out in my mind as if I thought that it was Hitchcock's best. And for the longest time, I would keep, I would say, now nah, it's Psycho. Psycho's is, Psycho's is masterpiece. But honestly, this is fair enough to say is his masterpiece too. Even Rear Window, like there's a few of them. I I wouldn't really argue it. If you're like, uh, it's Marnie, I'd be like, the fuck it is. <laughs> no, Even Frenzy, I do yeah. like Frenzy, but I I. It's like a little bit past his time, but he like has like one more spark of of what I want from Hitchcock. Yeah. And I I guess that's like it, it's interesting following him because this movie that's specifically about obsession. I mean, obsession's a big theme in a lot of his later movies. Psycho and Rear Window. Yeah. And obviously he has this obsession with trying to get these ideas right. So we talked about how he has that the wrong man story that he likes to keep revisiting again and again and again. 
but it's like his obsession is he can't he can't get it right. And I also feel the same way with like his his blonde actresses that he has. It's like it's just he hasn't like he keeps trying to get back to like what he thinks is like the perfect movie again and again and again and again. And it's like that analogy of a person that keeps painting the same thing over and over again, like flowers. You know, every time you paint them, they're just going to get better and better and better and better. People might think it's repetitive, but you're actually growing as an artist. And I think that's what Hitchcock's been doing the entire time. And I I feel that people study Hitchcock, like we're able to break this apart just by watching it. I think he was really hard on himself. I think he really broke down his own movies very harshly. Because um, even this, he's, he picked it apart. So it's interesting to like, go back to something like Shadow of a Doubt where he, it's it ended up being his favorite movie. I guess it's as close to perfect in his mind as he, like, he never peaked yeah. past, that, past that. But, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I wonder where he would, what he would say is his most favorite film now. It would be interesting from the grave if he's <laughs> able to see what people like. He's listening to our podcast from the grave. He's like, this is terrible. The Cinema yeah. de More, which is Italian or something, with these Pennsylvania redneck-sounding people. Yeah, because they're really butchering my vertigo right now. Even, even in like uh, listening to like Hitchcock Truffaut or reading the book, um, like it doesn't seem like he was always necessarily out to like satisfy critics or something like that. But it does seem like it when when critics like didn't like his films, like he almost kind of just goes. Oh yeah, I guess that probably wasn't that good or something like that. Like he like he, yeah, he is like too hard on himself or he he does uh he criticizes his own work frequently and it seems like if if they kind of like said something was bad with his movie, he just like went along and was like, "Yeah, I I guess that probably wasn't." Like, yeah, if he could, if he could see now that people are like, "Oh, Vertigo is like the greatest movie of all time." He'd be like, "That's what I always said. Vertigo was always <laughs> my best movie." Like I you did bring up a good point though. And this will probably harken back to all of the directors. You know, directors that we've previously talked about, the director we're going to go into next month. Why are their movies so good? Are they making movies for the audience? Obviously, Hitchcock's making movies for himself. He plays with the audience. He understands what the audience is, and he like incorporates that into his films. And I would have to say that Kubrick, the Coen brothers, they're all doing the same thing. Their style is different, but it, it's them making a movie for themselves. And I think if you're looking, this happens all the time. If you're trying to make a crowd pleaser or you're trying to figure out some formula, you're just going to fail. You know, when you see all these copycats for other movies. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one thing I would definitely definitely agree with, especially Hitchcock and Hitchcock and um, my brain. Kubrick. I don't, I don't, yeah, that is where I was going. Spielberg. I my brain just like stopped working for a second there. Uh, yeah, is that especially those two guys were definitely two that I think were were one hundred percent making movies 
just for what they purely wanted to see or working out their own ideas. They weren't, uh, again, the fact that Hitchcock kept making the same movie over and over again. Obviously, I think someone out there would probably have been like, are you sure you want to make that movie? It sounds exactly like this movie. And he's like, shut up. I'm making it again. Uh, which very, very. Didn't you already do this? Do the man who knew too much? I'm doing it again. Yeah, which definitely, definitely, uh, definitely says to me that that he was making movies for himself. That he was that he was just trying to he was just trying to redo his own ideas. Uh, but yeah, that's that that seems to be the biggest the biggest difference, I guess, is is when you can when you can tell someone's just making a movie just to make one, just because I had a good idea i guess or something like that or or you you get some of those films that are definitely definitely made for you know i was definitely hoping this was going to be the the number one movie at the box office this year uh but you know they didn't really care if somebody wanted to change things or make a bunch of cuts or something it was like oh whatever makes it the the number one movie sure uh i mean it's just like think of things that are popular something takes off that they're not expecting to take off. And, you know, take Squid Game, for example. Squid Game was very popular last year, and I guarantee that there's going to be a lot more things that come out that are identical, and they're not going to be as good because they're going to lose an important element, which is that that was actually trying to tell a decent story about a person. And... And it's going to be like, no, nah, people like the gore and the violence, and and that's yeah. what people want. So there's always like a misinterpretation of what makes the movie great. And I think Vertigo is, is if you just break it down to this story about this guy, he's very sympathetic. And when you know that he's getting played, it makes him more sympathetic. So even you have those instances where he's like being irrational, trying to get her to look like Madeline, you kind of like, well, you know, she deserves some sort of torture because we know that she's not a good person. <laughs> we know what she did to him. I guess as we close out Hitchcock, the only other thing I would ask Chuck is like, what Hitchcock, what's the number one Hitchcock movie you would recommend that we didn't talk about? For ones that we didn't talk about, I'd, I'd say maybe uh north by northwest is a really good one that we didn't go over like i i think that is a that may be the where he perfected the wrong man genre that he's done so many times which we've talked about a couple times i think that might be the one where he finally perfected that exact story um has probably like i don't the most interesting uh ending the the mount rushmore ending Mm -hmm. which is just insane like that that whole thing plays out really well. I feel like, I feel like that's a good place to start. And also it's kind of, it's more into like the spy world. It feels like it's, it almost feels like it's his version of like a James Bond story, except this character. Like it, it's almost that idea of this guy I mean, isn't James Bond. Bond. Too. Yeah, technically it is. Yeah. Um, where it feels like this guy is the, this guy's like your James Bond character, except he doesn't know that he's supposed to be James Bond <laughs> and he's just getting chased around the Essentially, country. Essentially, he lost his wallet and it snowballed from and there. It just, but yeah. you know what? Honestly, if you want to talk about iconic scenes, him being chased by the uh, crop dusting plane, is, plane. Like, is like that's the one that that's the that that's up there with the with the shower scene is like the most 
the most replayed and iconic scene from a Hitchcock film. Oh yeah, and the whole scene set up where he's just out in the field and the sound design and it's from a distance, before the plane yeah. starts chasing like oh yeah it's so good. It's, yeah, you almost don't really get much better than that. Yeah. So I think that's, that's the one that has the funny innuendo too at the end where they have a joke about like sleeping together and then the train goes the train goes into the tunnel. Yes, yeah, that's that's 100% <laughs> that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Hitchcock's like funniest ending, maybe. Yeah, that's yeah. So that's that I think's probably out of everything that we didn't talk about. I mean, there's there's a lot of good ones. I think uh, Notorious is really good. I think that's that's another that's another one of his really great ones from the from the 30s. I would have been interested talking about Rebecca also, because that was his movie. Like that was his big American movie. Yeah. They got nominated for Academy Awards and like which is also put his name out yeah, there. Yeah, which is also I guess you can kind of compare it to Vertigo. It's a it's kind of a ghost story. Yeah, uh, dealing with a a husband that maybe was involved in his wife's death or maybe wasn't. <laughs> like it gets very uh, very muddled as to how Hitchcock much he was is involved is in that. a Dateline before Dateline. Yeah, yeah. Rebecca's a Rebecca's a really good, uh, really good one to go with. Yeah, like you were saying that about. Uh, or the Catch a Thief is really good too, I think. Yeah, and it has that really strong Hollywood charm to it. Yeah, I feel like that's like ninety percent of that movie. Yeah, that's a fun one. There's again, he has. We just keep naming his cop yeah. movies. Nope. You cut out on me there for a second. We're still going. All you right. did too. The uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's, and that's that's what I said. Like I, when I rewatched all fifty of his films at least more than half of them have something worth watching in them. Uh, there's maybe like 10 that are like truly not good. And I wouldn't <laughs> recommend watching at all, but uh, most of them, most of them. And not all movies, ha- not all of the movies have to be good. Yeah. You know, it ha- it's, Get it's the almost bad one of those, ones out of your system. Yeah. It's almost one of those things that it's, it's just like averages. It's like, Oh, every, you know, Almost every movie Kubrick made is a masterpiece. It's like, well, he only made like 10 movies total over his career and like three of them aren't good or something like that. Whereas it's like, it's like the man made 50 films. Of course, they're not all going to be good. Well, you also have to think about this, too, where when we were talking about the man who knew too much, the original movie, he said that essentially the couple movies that he made before that were all bombs and he didn't really think that they were that good. Yeah. And he was surprised that he was still being allowed to make movies. And could you imagine if at that point in his career he got shunned and they just said stop? Yeah. He would have never went on to make anything else. And I also think that that's a high probability going to happen to some other director that is out there right now. You know, they make one movie and the second movie bombs and the third movie everyone's like, eh. And it's like, just give this person a chance and, you know, maybe they have other movies That'll be, you know, coming out and like, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of happened with uh, like just one that I can think of off the top of my head. That's almost like Neil Blomkamp. He had District 9 and everyone was like, oh, that movie's amazing. Then he did Elysium and people were like, eh, that was okay. And then he did Chappie and people were like, it's not good, buddy. Like (laughs) he just, he hasn't really done anything. And they didn't let him do Alien and he was the one that had the idea and of kind of like a way to to bring back Sigourney Weaver and everything. Yeah. 
and she was all in on the story and Ridley Scott's like I think I'm gonna come back and make Alien again and now he's done two movies and it sounds like he's still interested in doing another one yeah he's only 80 years old he's like I gotta make another Alien movie now yeah so we'll we'll see how that goes but yeah it does uh I guess it does happen you get uh get some of these guys that yeah just I, I I don't know maybe maybe just these studios are a little bit more uh they kind of are, I guess, in general, more careful with their money. That's that's largely been like uh, everyone brings up that that's uh, you know guys like Scorsese and Coppola or whatever say that like oh Marvel movies are terrible, like they're not real movies or something like that. Um, which I don't agree in that sentiment, but I do know what the some other people have mentioned about the way the movie industry is at a at a point now where it's it's like all or nothing. Like the, the studios only want to invest in like 200, $300 million movies that they hope are going to make triple that money back or they're right. investing everything in like Scorsese the super Everything Scorsese does is stuff. like super expensive for some reason. Yeah. Or they're getting like the super low budget, like, Hey, here's like a million dollars, like film something, you know, like the Bloom house method of like, Hey, film yeah, Bl- Blumhouse, Blumhouse yeah. and a 24 or something. Yeah. Like all like these, those, those, those small ones. But there's no like I feel like Hitchcock for like a lot of his films was like he was one of those guys like in the middle like his movies weren't like always the most expensive movies and that's kind of largely been like pushed aside it's like you're either making movies for 200 million dollars or you're making movies for 3 million dollars there's no like in the middle Right and I think Blumhouse had this great setup where they weren't going to do movies that were over 5 million dollars to make they've broken the rules since I think us was 10 million or something. And I'm interested to see what Nope is, you know, like how I definitely think the intrigue is there. Uh, It almost feels like an M night Shyamalan movie from 20 years ago. Like they're really like, what's the mystery? What's, what's going on with this? Yeah. And that's perfect. A perfect trailer, a perfect tease, but we'll have to see if like, do they throw more money at it? If they throw more money at it, they're not going to get as much back. Cause Get Out, I've brought it up many times before, being as cheap as it was, it made so much money yeah. when you think about the percentage. Like, just, like if you think about a big movie, think of uh, Spider-Man or the Batman, how much money went into make that movie, and then how much money went into advertising, and they might be profitable, but they're profitable by what? Yeah. So little compared to something like Get Out that's like, you know, you're over 50 times making what that movie was worth. Yeah. Like, you made bank. I guess that's why they're like, ah, these Halloween movies can be a little bit more expensive now. Yeah. I think that's a good model, though. And then another movie that I loved recently was X. And that was another movie where this guy basically said, I don't know if this movie will work or if anyone would be interested in making it, but... He put his script out there, and A24 said, all right, let's do this. And it's strange because it it, it owes so much. I know I'm not talking specifically about that movie, but uh, it owes so much to things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it feels so fresh compared to what, what I'm seeing in theaters lately. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's the biggest key. How do we make things feel fresh? Uh, I don't, and 
you brought up the superhero genre. I think the reason why the, it hasn't totally collapsed on itself yet is that they have all these different subgenres that they're able to explore with the superhero movies, so they're not really doing those like paint by number origin stories anymore. Yeah. They're they're trying new things and cuz they know they can't keep making the same movie over and over and over again. But will it fail? I don't know. It's going to have to be the 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 longest running genre of all time, I think, for like boom. It's been strong since like what the mid 2000s so like a good 15 years of like being like almost like yeah. constant superhero movies yeah it's it'll yeah doesn't seem like there's any end in sight so i but i guess that's that's your thing is that there's still just an audience for it i don't know everyone everyone still wants to go see those movies there's yeah, that's that's what everyone's been been predicting that there will be like comic book fatigue that people will be tired of seeing it. But that lately, that's uh, especially with the pandemic. It's like those those are the only movies that get people to go to the theater. Has been like mostly the superhero films. Like other than other than like Fast and Furious and James Bond. Like the only other films that have been getting people to go to the theaters has been Tenet, like Venom and uh, not Tenet, no. Venom 2 did very well, Venom, too. Yeah, Venom 2 did really well, and then obviously Spider-Man. Everyone went to see that, and then the Batman did really well uh, when it came out, and Morbius and comes out And now Morbius. Morbius is going to sure be perfect. Do well. <laughs> it's kind of point. It's kind of aiming at the same crowd as Venom with like more of a horror, I guess not less of comedy, I don't think. but Chuck, you don't even know how excited... I think by the time this episode comes out, Morbius is out. And you don't know how excited I am that Morbius is out. And the reason is because I'm tired of seeing that trailer. Everybody (laughs) is. I'm just tired of it being shoved down my throat. It's because it's the only thing coming out, and that's what they—that's what—that's all they can keep. A week later, we get the probably the greatest movie of all time, which I'm going to go see: Sonic the Hedgehog two. It's true. We're getting. I'm sure it'll be a masterpiece. (laughs) It's got Knuckles in it. How could it not be? It's got Knuckles. Jim Carrey's back in it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. The next movie I'm excited for is uh, the North Northman. Oh yeah, and I've already heard. uh, I think they've done. Oh, maybe that's April. April twenty second. Somebody I work with said that they have they can get tickets to go see uh, the director and Skarsgård talk about the movie in New York. But I had seen some early reviews where people were bitching about not being able to understand what people are saying, which I think is now the director's thing. Because listen, I love The Witch and I love The Lighthouse. I really do. They're those, both those great some, movies. Those are some subtitle films. I need subtitles for both of them. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> I saw somebody, like one of the re- reviews was like, you need a, a degree in Viking history to understand what's going on in that movie. Yeah, that that, that does we'll seem to see. be his thing. Yeah, that does actually look really good. It's harder to it's it's harder to advertise those movies too, I think, because it's it's original, and I do I do want to check it out more. But there is that gamble, of like what what's more exciting to you? It's like it has to have some kind of like something that ties you into it, I guess. 
And I think the thing is, like, I always say, oh, that guy's been making pretty good movies. I thought the trailer for Men looked pretty good, too, which is a Garland who did Ex Machina, which is great. Yeah, It had your favorite Oscar Isaac scene in it. And Annihilation, yes. which I didn't think was great, but I appreciated a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a hater. I do. I do uh, the the thing that made me think of the Northman too again was they Eric Northman. They, they just uh, yeah, again, sort of <laughs> tying in the um the they released a new poster for it today, and I love that it mentions that the director is Robert Eggers twice on it. Like it literally says from acclaimed director Robert Eggers, written by Robert Eggers, and then underneath it says directed by Robert Eggers. It's like he talked about how he's the director twice on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird like they like they mention it twice they're like they're like director robert eggers this film directed by robert well eggers. maybe they're gunning for uh best directing next year at the academy awards or something yeah we'll see anyways we're moving on next week to a new director one mr wes anderson yeah i'm excited for that not Paul W.S. Anderson. We'll get to him eventually. We might. <laughs> and we've picked, we've selected for your listening pleasure four Wes Anderson films to talk about. We have a new co-host, as I we spoke briefly about on our Oscars episode. And what's going to happen in the future? Only time will tell. But I think it'll be interesting. I think it will switch things up. And I will probably... I am already doubting myself. But I will probably watch all of Wes Anderson's movies. Which is like 12 now. Maybe. Probably, yeah. 10. I did all the Kubrick ones. And he was 13 or something. So we can do this. I could do Wes Anderson. Hitchcock was impossible. Cohen Brothers was impossible. Yeah, that was a lot there. Wes Anderson's doable. So, thank you guys for listening. Thanks for subscribing to our podcast. That means a lot to us. And hopefully you're liking this. Hopefully you're okay with the minimalistic Hitchcock episodes that it's pretty much just the raw audio for these ones. I haven't done anything special since The Shining, really. The Shining was the one where I went all the way and trying to, you know, having a lot of fun with the mixing. So that is a good example of what we're capable of. And hopefully the Hitchcock ones are like, yeah, the in, the conversation's okay. <laughs> it's a more interesting con. It's an interesting conversation. It's all right. I'll give them a pass. Yeah. So, anyways, thanks for listening. You're all awesome. Thanks. We're Cinema Demore. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay up to date with news and information on upcoming episodes. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Pandora, Alexa, or iHeartRadio. It would be greatly appreciated if you would subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice. We also appreciate feedback, so rate us, review us, and let us know what you think. And above all else, thank you for listening.